Sequels can be a wonderful thing. They can evolve the characters, enrich their story, and catch us up with our cinematic friends. They also have the ability to make the original feel like a stinky mess by getting rid of everything from the first movie. You know, like the main star. Will this sequel be sweet or sour? Find out as we endeavor to see if Speed 2 Cruise Control is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, grades in B, movies. Now, I have to admit that there are some franchises where... It begins and ends usually with the first movie, and then you're surprised when you realize that there are sequels. This is sort of one of those situations, because up until preparing for this episode, I had lived and died by the very first entry of this franchise. I knew the sequel existed. I was avoiding the sequel like the plague. But then Peter from the Movie Duel podcast shows up and says, hey, why don't we watch Speed 2 Cruise Control? And I'm like, uh, he did it. He said the thing. Pete, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well, thank you, Jason. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to to sort of defending this choice. Um, it's going to be very very tough, but I'm prepared. I think. Now, I'm going to ask you, before we get into deep diving into this film, when it came time to pick a movie, and the first thing apparently that came to your mind was Speed 2 Cruise Control, I must ask, why do you hate me so? I mean, why pick this movie? <laughs> well, it was threefold, really. Um, first <laughs> of all, my my first two choices on uh, coming on your podcast have been reasonably safe, I would say. Quite, you know, close to that 60%... Um, uh, rotten tomato score that's that's sort of the the benchmark um so I, I thought this time you know it's got it's it's go hard or go home you know it's it's got to be a, a something a bit meatier and something <laughs> to to really really try and defend i suppose um secondly was that sort of t- uh, tomato meter score of 4% um you know i'll i'll from the get-go, I'll say I'm not going to sit here and say that this film is any kind of um, masterpiece or forgotten gem or anything like that. But I don't think it's worth 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. And thirdly, I think that this is the first film that I went to see at the cinema without parents or older siblings or anything like that. So this this was I'm pretty sure this was the first film I went to see of my own volition. That's always fascinating because like I remember growing up and you know going to see a lot of movies like in the theater and my mom was a big movie buff still is a big movie buff and bringing me to the theater. So I I I was introduced to a lot of films, but then it comes to that point where it's like okay, I'm going to go to the movies by myself or or with a friend and that that still qualifies right yeah. you know and yeah, yeah. i think for me it was probably transformers the movie cuz mm. i'm pretty sure i watched that about 3 4 or 5 times in the theaters and then rented it ad nauseum to the point where i could quote it um <laughs> but it's it's always fascinating to find out what that that first solo sojourn to the to the cinema is and you got speed too i'm sorry 
Mm, well, it was either that or The Lost World. It's one of the two. I'm not quite sure. I mean, release dates can be a little bit um, janky, certainly in 1997, uh, between the, the US and uh, and the UK. So it, it could have been The Lost World, which is a slightly better, uh, better choice, but we'll see i was i was about to say like if your choices of of, uh, at the theater are you can go to speed two or you can go to you know the lost world that's like saying do you want the sandwich or the shawarma um (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i I did see both i've definitely saw both the cinema with the same friend as well so it could have been the lost world but i'm pretty sure it was speed two (laughs) now everyone's sitting there going Shawarma, that's a great name for a band. Probably a punk band, but regardless of. Before, though, before we dive into Speed 2, Cruise Control, it is time to take this Sandra Bullock sequel, this Shawarma, if you will, and trailerize it. There are a few things worse than the horror of having to deal with public transit. Having to deal with vacation transit is one of those things. And Annie Porter hates both. Sandra Bullock returns to a franchise that looks nothing like the first movie in Speed 2, Cruise Control. The first time out, she can't allow the bus to stop. And in the sequel, she can't allow the action genre cash cow to stop. But hey, if you want to make hope floats, you need to get on a sinking ship. Along for the ride is not Keanu Reeves, also known as Jason Patrick. Together, they'll try to stop Willem Dafoe from crashing the ship into an oil tanker. And by together, I mean he does all the work while she gets all the acclaim. Sweet deal. Climb aboard as we set sail for Speed 2 Cruise Control. Ready PG-13 for Paycheck Grab Back. It should be noted, apparently, according to IMDb, the only reason Sandra Bullock did this film and agreed to do this film was so she could finance the movie Hope Floats. So to get Hope Floats to to work, she had to do this. Sometimes you you got to accept the shawarma. But let's talk about who's in this film here. The movie stars Sandra Bullock, Jason Patrick, Willem Dafoe, Tamura Morrison, Brian McCarty, Jeremy Hotz, Bo Svensson, Royale Watkins, Christine Ferkins, and a bunch of stowaways. However, there is an almost starring in this one. As Geiger, as played by Willem Dafoe, apparently Gary Oldman was considered for the role and offered it, but he turned it down so he could go to Air Force One which just goes to show that Gary Oldman makes smart choices. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't think, I don't think Gary Oldman would have been able to fit to that anyway. I think, you know, what we got with um, Willem Dafoe, which I'm sure we'll get onto, I think Willem Dafoe's a much, he can read, he can play the tone of a film. And I think he, uh, Gary Oldman would have, would have, probably overacted in a different way i suppose and and that's the thing like there there are some actors who can they sell like the 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 overacting and it becomes almost fun the, the first person that comes to mind is richard e grant like richard e grant yes. would have been wonderful and delicious in this film as well 
But I think you're right. I think Gary Oldman is, I, I hate to say it, too good for Speed 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that, definitely. Now, obviously, Keanu Reeves declined to do the sequel. Apparently, he apparently he read the script and said, yeah, no, I'm going to go do The Devil's Advocate. So, you know, there's that. But under yeah. consideration for the male lead, of course, the character of Alex is played by Jason Patrick. I'm going to run these names by you here, and let, mm-hmm. let's see if you think they would have paired well with Sandra Bullock given this script, okay? Uh, yeah. P- Patrick Muldoon. Yeah, you see, I, I sort of looked this up, and... I don't know who Patrick Muldoon is. <laughs> okay, so I'm not the only one. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Mm, okay. <laughs> no, well, I don't actually. He, yeah, I, I think he... Well, he paired pretty well with um, Sandra Bullock in A Time to Kill, so mm-hmm. I can see that, that chemistry... It, it certainly have had more chemistry than uh, Jason Patrick. Um, so I could have seen that. Yeah, definitely. See, here's the thing. When, when I see Matthew McConaughey's name there, and I, and the first thing that comes to mind, you know, in as far as putting him in a potential Speed 2 movie, mm-hmm. is I flash back to the movie Sahara, where you play uh, Dirk Pitt, the character from the Clive Cussler novel. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, in hindsight... I kind of like him in that role, and I think he can play that that action adventure star fairly well. Like Sahara is another one of those films that I'm going to have to talk about because I think I've talked about it a few times on this show <laughs> because I'm a big Clive Cussler fan. I've read so many of his yeah. books. I love the Dirk Pitt series, and then Sahara came out, and I stopped reading the Clive Cussler novels. It happens. It happens. <laughs> but in hindsight, he actually wasn't a bad Dirk Pitt there are so many other bad castings in that, but he's not a bad Dirk Pitt. And I think he could have carried that. Oh, I don't know. Have you seen Sahara? I haven't. No, no. Okay. So uh, before I recommend it, I'm going to say, have you read Clive Cussler's books? <laughs> also? No. <laughs> okay. So you'll enjoy Sahara then. <laughs> this is good. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Christian Slater. Yeah, I could see Christian Slater. I think he'd probably, fit the tone of the film quite well. Um, whether he'd have had the chemistry with uh, Sandra Bullock is another question. Um, I think he's he's a very um, one-dimensional actor, and that probably sounds quite unfair, and I don't think there's... I wouldn't say he's a bad actor, but I don't think um, he's got a great deal of range... See, I'm, I'm going to argue he, that a little bit. And I, I say that because he did a movie called uh, He Was a Quiet Man. And he is very, he's so not your typical Christian Slater role for him in that. And it's a hard movie to watch. I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. And um, until you get to the end and you see the really bad CGI. But that being <laughs> said, he plays a role that's very different from him, and it's it's definitely a movie worth watching. The movie's called He Was a Quiet Man, but I, I do understand, okay. like, there is a Christian Slater type, and if, <laughs> if you had said to me Christian Slater was under consideration for the role of Geiger, I would have totally believed that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. And finally, and I can't believe I'm saying this, <laughs> John Bon Jovi. Just, just no, no. 
No, 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 no. If there's any way to make this film worse, it would have been John Bon Jovi for sure. Now, are you saying that because you're not a fan of Bon Jovi's music? Are you saying that because you don't think he fit the role, or are you saying that because you've seen Moonlight and Valentino? Uh, I'm saying that because it's John Bon Jovi. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nothing more than that. I think it would have just made it. um, I'm trying to think what I've seen him acting in. I have seen him in something. I can't remember what the hell, for the life of me, what it is. Um, But, yeah, no. No, no. I mean, here's the thing, like... (laughs) When he appeared on 30 Rock as himself, I mean, that was kind of like self-deprecating humor, so that's Mm -hmm. kind of fun. Um, The first time I remember seeing him in a film was for about three seconds when he was one of the villains in, at least one of the prisoners getting out of the the cage in Young Guns 2, only to get shot. (laughs) And probably still... To this day, John Bon Jovi's best acting gig. Three seconds, Ooh. get shot. The movie is directed by Jan DeBon, and of course, he directed the first one. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure he doesn't really advertise that because at the Razzies that year, this was nominated eight times. So let's go through this list here. At the 18th Annual Razzie Awards, it was nominated for Worst Picture. It lost to The Postman. Sandra Bullock was nominated for Worst Actress. She lost to Demi Moore in G.I. Jane. Willem Dafoe was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor. He lost to Dennis Rodman in Double Team. And the fact that Dennis Rodman is on this list makes me wonder how he didn't win every award because it's Dennis Rodman. (laughs) Sandra Bullock and Jason Patrick were nominated for Worst Screen Couple. They lost to Dennis Rodman and Jean-Claude Van Damme in Double Team. The movie was also nominated for Worst Director for Jan DeBont. They lost to Kevin Costner for The Postman. The movie was nominated for Worst Screenplay. Lost to The Postman. It was also nominated for Worst Original Song for the song My Dream as performed by Shaggy. They lost to the entire song score from The Postman. So... Thank God for the postman. (laughs) I I was about to say, which is funny too. And again, I have to go back and actually read the book because the book is written by David Brin. And David Brin, if you're a sci-fi author, David Brin is a wonderful, wonderful author. Um, When they were looking to continue uh, the Foundation series as originally written by Isaac Asimov, they picked three authors to write one book each to continue the Foundation series. Of course, Foundation is now a, a series on Apple TV. Um, but they had picked Greg Benford, Greg Bear, and David Brin. So the fact that he's at that level where they're saying, yeah, you're allowed to continue Asimov's works. So that, 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 that's saying a lot. <laughs> now, that's seven nominations. I said eight. That's because they won for worst remake or sequel. Here are the movies that this movie beat. Batman and Robin, Home Alone 3, (laughs) The Lost World Jurassic Park, and Mikhail's Navy. Now, I'm not saying it deserved to win, (laughs) but it might have deserved to win given that kind of company. I don't know. I mean, the, the standout from that list is obviously Batman and Robin, which is, I mean, I'm a big DC fan. And no, I mean, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I suppose Batman and Robin's 
of you know it's 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 made very tongue in cheek i suppose so that's probably edges it towards um being a little bit self deprecate uh, self deprecating but you know it feels a little meta at times. It, feel, it feels like it's, mm-hmm. you know, t- not only tipping its hat, but it's tipping the entire cowl and cape as well to the Adam West era. <laughs> However, yeah, absolutely. that was the Razzies. We're not done with the accolades here <laughs> because at the 1997 Stinkers, the film was given a dishonorable mention. The worst film at the Stinkers that year was Batman and Robin. Jan DeBont was nominated for worst director. He lost to Joel Schumacher for Batman and Robin. It was also nominated for Worst Screenplay for a Film Grossing Over $100 Million Using Hollywood Math, and yes, that's the actual name of the award, lost to Batman and Robin. I'm seeing a theme here with the stinkers. However, it won for Worst Sequel. It beat Batman and Robin, The Lost World, Alien Resurrection, and An American Werewolf in Paris. Well. That's, that seems very unfair. The Lost World seems very unfair to be nominated for worst anything. Certainly uh, worst sequel. I, you know what? I'm actually going to... I'm going to say something that it actually kind of leads into something I was going to save till the end of the show, but I'm going to say it now anyways because you kind of led into it, so that leads me to believe that you saw my notes. The, <laughs> the Lost World was always destined to fail. Because the yeah. original Jurassic Park was so amazing. You know, mm-hmm. the thing with Speed 2 is that it was always destined to fail because Speed was one of those sleeper hits that became mm-hmm. like just iconic in the fact that A, it's freaking Keanu Reeves, but it the sequel lacked so much from what made the original good. And when you have something yeah. that's beloved, and, and Speed is a beloved film, Mm-hmm. You're you're climbing uphill before you even yeah. roll the, the roll the the uh, the camera. Yeah, and I mean this is, you know, this is probably going to be my biggest argument for uh, being a, a slight proponent for this film. Certainly more than the four percent that it got on Rotten Tomatoes, and is that this is a terrible sequel to Speed. Absolutely, I will agree with that. Had this not been a, a sequel to Speed and just a film on it on its own, I don't think it would have been as maligned as it is. See, I feel like you just speed ran to the end where all my yes. notes were hiding because, <laughs> yes, clearly you've hacked my system here. <laughs> However, despite all those awards, it, it wasn't all bad at the box office, even though it's going to seem that way at first. The film had a budget, according to IMDb, of $160 million. Domestically, it only made $48 million, and worldwide made $164.5 million. However, when it debuted on the June 13, 1997 weekend, it debuted at number one with $16.1 million, narrowly beating out Con Air. Now, it did get knocked out of number one the following week by The Lost World, but... At $16 million, Speed 2 made more in its first week than the original Speed did by about $2 million. So mm-hmm. it started good and then went downhill because that's when the critics got their hands on it. 
Over at Metacritic, this film has a Metascore of 23, and you mentioned it over at Rotten Tomatoes. The audience score sits at 16%, but the tomatometer is at a very, 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 very low 4%. And I want to put this into perspective here, because when we usually talk about Sandra Bullock, we're gushing because she is an absolute gem. This film, of movies that have an official tomatometer, this film is the lowest of her career at 4%. However, when it comes to audience score, it's not. Of of movies that have an actual audience score, tomato score on Rotten Tomatoes, Hangman was sitting at 5%. Who Shot Pat was sitting at 9%. And Fire on the Amazon was sitting at 14%. So... It's not as bad as Fire on the Amazon, apparently. <laughs> okay. I, I've not seen either any of those films. Before. Yeah, no. I mean, Fire on the Amazon is one of those films where it's like, people know it, I think, pretty much for one reason and one reason alone. Well, okay, well, two reasons, and you can probably guess what those two reasons are. <laughs> the left yes, and the right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. all I'm going to say about that one. I have never seen Fire on the Amazon, so I can't really justify, you know, or le- at least comment on the film. But I'm sure it's one of those films where Sandra Bullock goes, and this is how we start the career. <laughs> but let's get into the breakdown of this film here. And we have to start, of course, with Sandra Bullock, who plays Annie. Mm-hmm. You know, we're returning from the original and one of the very few people to actually return from the original. There were a few smaller yeah. characters, but she's the main one here. So how was Annie in cruise control for you? Well, I mean, obviously the film really depends on on her and, you know, especially with the absence of Keanu Reeves. And she's the only real, like you say, link to the first film, apart from a couple of bit parts. Um, and and Sandra Bullock was really on a, an upward trajectory at this point. She'd done uh, the first speed. Uh, she'd done the net, I think, by this point, and Time to Kill. And she was very much becoming a, a bankable actress. But I don't think she was bankable enough for this for it to, to make an impact on this film. And, you know, she's she's definitely quite infectious in this film now, I think, still. She's, she's still quite charming. And she does the best with what she's got, I suppose. Um, you know, that there's a lot of misplaced humour in this film, but the, the, there are some parts of her character that, that add to that humour a, a, a slight amount. But she's she's really she's really sort of struggling uphill with 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 the script and and the plot of the film. Um, but for me, she's she is one of the better parts of the film. I think I am a little disappointed in you, sir. <laughs> because in all the movies that you listed leading up to this film, you, sir, have failed to mention Demolition Man. Yeah, but that was after Speed, so she wasn't on that. It was after Speed. Well, no, it was 1993. Mm-hmm. So Speed was 94, yeah. Yeah, so again, still on the up and up, but any chance I get to talk about Demolition Man, I'm going to take it. So maybe I'm just uh, you know, trying to squeeze that in there. But you know, regardless of, Demolition Man is a gem. Anyways, but, <laughs> but getting back to Sandra Bullock, and I think the thing about the first movie with her is that Annie is 
a very realistic character in the first speed who's mm-hmm. you know stuck in an incredible situation and has to overcome her own fears in order to be able to sit down and drive the bus right while mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves how you know, has to do his best to save today but she's not helpless in that film yeah you know she's actually doing something she's she's part of the solution and I think the problem with this one is that Annie feels like she didn't need to be there with everything that was going on, Annie is a good character because she rises to the occasion, because she meets the moment, and because despite the insanity that's going on, she's somehow going to do her part, and the solution can't be solved without her. Mm-hmm. She may as well just stay in the cabin at this point. Yeah, you know, had a few martinis, just chilled out for the for the two hours there, and let Jason Patrick run around. And I think that's a discredit to what Sandra Bullock had built in the first film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, she's, she is a little more than, you know, sort of folly for the, uh, for the villain um, in the, in the last half of the film. And, you know, she, it's just, the build up is, is more about Annie because she's the only connection to the first film. So that first half of the film is, 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 reacquainting yourself with her character and her new boyfriend and everything else. And that works quite well. And then once, you know, there's the, uh, the evacuation of the, of the, of the ship and, and everything else, she, she's pretty much doing nothing. Yeah. And I think the problem too, is that the script felt like it was written for somebody else. Like they forgot mm-hmm. what Sandra Bullock brought to the table on the first time. They forgot who Annie was and it's mm. written for a, for lack of a better term, a damsel in distress as opposed to someone who has already proven herself in the heat of the moment. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Jason Patrick, who played Alex. Um, I have thoughts. I have many, many thoughts. None of them good. But how how is he for you? Well, I mean, Jason Patrick is one, is one of those actors and I think he's... You know, with all due respect, I don't think he's ever really found his feet as an actor. He's never sort of settled into a particular genre. Um, he's not great as a romantic lead in this, certainly. Um, or even as an action lead, I don't think. You know, he's he's not got the charm that Keanu Reeves has, and he's got very little chemistry with Sandra Bullock. Um, and there's just no charisma there. He's He's very... He's very wooden. He's very um, straight, um, and I think that's that's what really sort of lacks. If you, if you'd have had a another actor in this in this role, and I think you know, in retrospect, Matthew McConaughey probably would have been a really good choice for for having that chemistry. If you'd had that bit more chemistry, I think the role of of, of Alex Shaw would have worked a hell of a lot better. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Like Jason Patrick is driving at one speed and i'm sorry i'm gonna make really really bad driving puns and probably a few boat puns here and there but um dad jokes and bad jokes for days over here um but the thing with it it, there's no you're right there's no charisma there's no dynamic to his performance the thing with Mm -hmm. keanu reeves in the first one again you have a cop who is again trying to rise to meet the moment but there's moments during the whole thing where he's lost and he doesn't know what to do next and he's feeling overwhelmed and outthought and outmaneuvered by Dennis Hopper mm-hmm. like Keanu Reeves 
felt real in speed despite being an action yeah. hero but it wasn't an action jason patrick went full action hero in this and yeah you know complete with movable parts and non-movable face like there was there was zero expression in this he he was legitimately a gi joe action figure caribbean style absolutely yeah he's 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 totally just one-dimensional uh, this character um and just just in case we get we move straight on from Jason Patrick because it's very easy to do. I just wanted to point out something that's quite criminal, to be fair, I think, um, is that there was a massive missed opportunity that they never made a live-action Captain Scarlet and cast Jason Patrick in the lead because he looks just like Captain Scarlet. Now you're going to have to refresh my memory, and and maybe this is a, an across the pond thing. <laughs> but Captain Scarlet, it maybe it was it was the the, the follow up series to Thunderbirds. But you look if you you Google Captain Scarlet, it looks just like Jason Patrick, and he's probably slightly less wooden. <laughs> I, I I was going to make a wooden joke if you didn't, but you did, so <laughs> so we're good there. Now Thunderbirds, I get. Thunderbirds, I completely get. Um, so if, if that's in that kind of same realm, okay, cool. We get that now, and yes, absolutely. Willem Dafoe as Geiger. <laughs> like, if this character is a buffet, Dafoe came to eat. But how was he for you? Yeah, I mean, if you, you, know, if you want somebody to effectively replace Dennis Hopper, the closest you're going to get, I think, in the night is, is Willem Dafoe. Um, you know, it's not perfect. It's not stellar performance, um, mainly due to the script, which I'm sure we'll probably keep going back to. Um, but I don't think Willem Dafoe's ever really sort of pulled out a dud performance. And he's just, just you know, chewing on the scenery like he always does. Um, and to great effect as well. Um, I think he struggles. I think where he struggles, where where Dennis Hopper sort of excelled, and and again, you know, this is down to the script, is that Dennis Hopper was able to have that sort of one-two with the Keanu Reeves character, and 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 you know, they were able to communicate, and he was able to play off that. Willem Dafoe's having to do a lot of acting by himself. There's not much of the film where he's conversing with, um, you know, the the antagonists uh, or anything like that in the film. He's really acting with himself and some leeches at times as well. Um, so he doesn't get the opportunity to, to go to the lengths that Dennis Hopper does in the first film, which I think is a massive shame. I'm actually about to start saying nice things about this film here. <laughs> So, you know, bear with me here on this one. So first, let's take a look at the role of Geiger. When it comes to villains, there's got to be more of a motivation than just, oh, hey, there's money and diamonds on the boat. I'm going to steal them. His entire motivation for specifically targeting a cruise liner because his company designed all the automation systems. And then when he got sick, he also got fired. And you know, that kind of shunning for corporate reasons and obviously you know you're sick you're no good to us like there's a perfectly valid reason 
for Geiger to want to seek revenge. And it's nothing personal against, you know, the, the people on the boat. And it's nothing mm-hmm. really personal against the people driving the boat because they're just, they're employees just like he was. But he, you know, he's doing what he can to exact revenge on the company itself, regardless of who gets hurt. And he's trying to do it in the biggest way possible. It just so happens that there's diamonds there as well. So, hey, why not, right? But it's mm-hmm. never really about the payday. It's more about the revenge. So in that sense, I think Geiger was at least built as a decent villain with, with motivation. The other thing, too, with Willem Dafoe is that he probably took a look at the script and said, oh, hey, it's a popcorn flick. I'm going to play mm-hmm. it like a popcorn villain. It's yeah. almost like he understood the assignment and everyone yeah. else didn't. And it's similar to, I think, why The Mummy works so well as a, as a film because they looked at it and said, this, this is a classic big screen popcorn flick that is larger than life. Mm-hmm. So we don't need subtlety. You know, we don't we, we don't need nuance. Nuance is not made for speed two. So if that's the case, then Willem Dafoe definitely injected some adrenaline into the film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I think he's you know, he's he's a very capable actor. And like I said at the start, I think he he's he he understands the tone of projects. Um something I saw him in quite recently which I'd, I watched because I'd heard that it's 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 very much lauded um, by audiences and very much a cult film was the um, the Boondock Saints, which I did not enjoy an ounce other than Willem Dafoe's performance. And again, that comes down to him understanding the tone of the film. See, it's funny because. You're one of the few people I've ever talked to that has said they did not enjoy the Boondock Saints. And it qualifies. The The audience score is fairly high on that film, but the tomatometer is in the 20s. And that's, fa- A, the difference in, you know, the two scores always fascinates me because someone got it and someone didn't. It's usually the critics who didn't. But for you to tell me that you didn't like the Boondock Saints, that makes me sit there and go, huh, maybe I need to go back and rewatch it, but I still liked it. Not necessarily for, you know, the the two main characters, although loves me some Billy Connolly in this, but you're right. Willem Dafoe is definitely the, you know, the stage character as opposed to the, uh, the screen character. Mm-hmm. Yes. Definitely, definitely. But sometimes you... And I would like to point out as well that he has a power glove in this film. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> there is nothing more 90s than a power glove. But <laughs> but the thing is, though, his, again, his character, it makes sense, right? He's a yeah. computer genius. He mm-hmm. developed the systems. He knows how to hack the systems. Um, let's be honest, his little golf club, you know, arsenal... Um, completely brilliant and it's it's always great when you're watching an action film and they have those sneaky little gadgets that they can pull out and set all over the place but even so it's he's not there to destroy the boat it, it's simple to just blow up a boat he yeah. he wants to make a, a point he wants to make a statement and yeah. geiger makes sense in that 
And it's one of the few actors who does. But then I think, it, it, again, you know, going back to what I said earlier on about this being, this would have been a better film if it wasn't a speed sequel because we're going very much into the same trajectory as the first film in that Dennis Hopper's character is is feels that he's been unfairly maligned by um, the police and he's not been given his his reti- the retirement fund or, or whatever it was or he was he was you know gotten rid of because he was disabled because he'd lost you know his fingers and things like that this is almost exactly the same mo as the villain in the first film so immediately you sort of think they're just completely rehashing the same thing and then for our main character of Annie to be involved with somebody who has got exactly the same MO, it then becomes unrealistic. I mean, obviously you take a look at the Die Hard movies, right? And the the same criticism could be thrown at Die Hard too, right? Oh, hey, John McClane is waiting for his wife at Christmas and terrorists happen to attack. And this time it's in an airport instead of Nakatomi Plaza. Like, Yes, you're going to. But then they were they were sort of drug lords, and there was a drug. You know that they were busting out a a big, um, you know, General Asperanza, who's a a a big drug lord, and 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 various different other things. So it's different enough. It's different enough from from the first one. Mm -hmm. But I also think too that's also why I think I preferred. Die Hard 3, so Die Hard with a Vengeance over Die Hard 2 because Ooh. it was much more different and it felt more mm-hmm. like a cat and mouse psychological game as opposed to, you know, John McClane's going to stop the terrorists in, you know, X building. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I wonder too now what would Speed 3 be like and if that's the case. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm very interesting. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. To Mira Morrison, of course, most people will recognize him as Boba Fett, uh, as Giuliano, the first mate who becomes the de facto captain. Uh, a, shout out to, to, to Mira Morrison, who apparently doesn't age because this movie came out in 97 and he still looks the damn same today. <laughs> P- apparently it's all the back to tanks here. But how was he for you? Um, well, I mean, he, he was on quite a different sort of trajectory to uh, Sandra Bullock at this time, really. You know, he's... He's come off a film I, I saw quite recently, which was 1994's Once Were, uh, Once Were Warriors from New Zealand, which is a fantastic film, and I can thoroughly recommend it to absolutely everybody. Anyone who hasn't seen it, it is brilliant. But then he goes from that to Barbed Wire, from that to The Island Dr. Moreau, and then he goes to this. I mean, I'd, I'd argue that he's a little bit miscast. I think he's better as a sort of moody sort of you know hard ass um i don't think he's the right man to play somebody who's effectively sort of becomes quite incompetent uh throughout the film um and i think it it would have helped the film if he wasn't quite so bumbling through through a lot of the film he's not really a big help to um uh, to Jason Patrick's character um, for the most part. And he's, he, he seems very much out of his depth, which I don't think suits his acting style. I'm going to put a counter on that. And I think it's mainly because of what we just talked about with Geiger. So Geiger built these computer systems for this cruise line. So it was very much, you know, sit back and enjoy your cappuccino or your tea, or whatever the heck you're drinking, and the boat pretty much sails itself. So, by Tamira Morrison, by Giuliano being a tad ineffectual when things start to go wrong, it makes sense because Geiger designed the system to do the work for them. So they're not as familiar with how to actually get themselves out of a jam, which again leads into Geiger's resentment. They let go of me because I got sick and these people can't even drive a damn boat by themselves. What the heck, guys? Like, what the hell did I design this for? You know, did I design it for you to become incompetent? So you can almost see that through Giuliano's, and the same goes for Merced as well, through their, you know, seeming inability to, you know, to overcome the challenges caused by all of this, it almost justifies Geiger's disdain for them. Yeah, I can see that. That's a fair point, I suppose. Yeah. I can't mm. believe I just defended Speed 2. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, in that sense, 
the fact that he's he is the first mate. He's not the captain. He's just the first mm-hmm. mate, right? Who happens to take over once Bo Svensson goes swimming. He's not supposed to be in charge. He's not supposed mm-hmm. to be the one fighting off some invasion, terrorist attack, which is probably what it feels like at that point. Like everything is going wrong with the boat. He's not trained for that because the boat's not supposed to do that. So kind of makes sense. But I, there's something about his charm that I think I liked Giuliano in this. Okay. I'll give you that. <laughs> but I mentioned Merced is played by, by Brian McCarty. Uh, another one who's just trying to keep the, sh- you know, the ship going. Um, I have thoughts and he was fine until one point, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Uh, well, I think Brian McCarty's quite a, he's quite a fascinating actor. You know, he's, he's got this very sort of quite peculiar crisp sort of Scottish accent and it's quite sort of over enunciated and, and it, it, it's just quite unusual for a Scottish accent. Um, but I think it works quite well. He's, you know, he's very much the sort of naysayer on the on the crew side of things, and you know, he's pointing out the craziness and the and the impracticality of things and the danger uh, of the tasks at hand. And I think it it this this is where we start to get into the into the sort of the cast and the characters where we've got a lot going on with with various different sort of people and parts of the crew and things like that. And he, he he gets a little bit sort of lost in the shuffle. I mean, I think he's he's quite a capable actor. I mean, you know, I, I knew him sort of before this from uh, another film I think I put toward put to you for for this podcast was The Ghost in the Darkness, which he's, he's quite effective in. Um, and then later on, he was in a, a BBC series over here called uh, Line of Duty, where he played an absolute, absolute bastard, um, but really well. Um, and sort of here, he's, he's, I don't know, he's just sort of in the middle of, you know, whether you should be sympathetic to him or you, you should be annoyed with him or, or, or what. It, it, his, his character's sort of all over the place. I think he was doing fine until they were, you know, about to crash into the, um, you know, into the little beach town (laughs) and he's counting down the speed. So it's like reverse speed at this point. But the thing is, yeah, (laughs) but the thing is, he's staring pretty much right down the barrel of the lens, counting down the speed in knots. And it looks like he's getting whipped to death in order to do it, as because like I, I mean I get right you gotta you know move around like like the boat's getting rocked and all that, but it literally looks like he's like you know you know eleven knots. Please, sir, can I have another? I like oh come on. <laughs> and, and then they, they crash like zero zero oh and I, and I get it's the script. I do. I really do appreciate it's the script, but. If 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 the director was hurting Brian McCarty while he was counting down the speed, please stop hurting Brian McCarty. It just it it became almost memeable at that point, <laughs> and because they kept going back to it, it's like you clearly thought this was a good idea, Jane yeah. DeBond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 totally unrequired at that point. It just sort of, it really does sort of slow the pace of the film down that we. We all we need to see is the destruction that it's that it's it's making on this this little beach town, and we don't need to know how 
how much it's slowing down. <laughs> it's slowing down the boat. We just need to know how close it's getting to the little little doggy and the little kid in the apartment. Yeah, no, it's That's uh, all we need to know. <laughs> yeah, you you can show him pointing out that the speed is going down every time they crash into something and that you know we need more things to crash into like that that's that would be a funny thing and all you need to do is do it once just do it once stop whipping the poor boy jeremy hots as ashton the concierge uh supposedly i guess the comic relief yeah well he's quite sort of archetypal sort of slimy ungracious sort of a loser i suppose he's he's that you'd expect from this kind of film uh, and he does sort of pull it off you know you believe that he's he's that kind of person that would fish for for tips and gratuities at the uh on the on the on the cruise um but he does ask at one point why is everybody trying to kill me and i think the answer is because everybody thinks that you're rob schneider mm. yes this, this this is very much the rob schneider role isn't it I, I never yeah. really pictured it until now. <laughs> You've just ruined a Jeremy Hotz performance. Not that it was any good to begin with. Um, and, and again, it's one of those things where I get that you need to have some of those characters, those characters who are going to occasionally quip and just tell you exactly how bad things are by occasionally shouting it, we're all going to die. But you, 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 you whack them over the head and toss them in the closet, and that was probably the best move. Because the character was not that good. Well, this is this 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 comes to it. This really brings up a big point for this film in the fact that it was a it was a PG film, and that was a choice by Jan de Bont. He wanted it to be more accessible to a wider audience. Um, so obviously, you know, a difference to the original speed. There's no swearing. There's quite a, a you know distinct lack of violence. And there's really only, you know, excluding the main villain, there's only really a couple of deaths in this film and they're not very graphic. Um, And, you know, really the the Ashton character, it it could have probably died and and sort of raised the stakes a little bit um, in this film. Yeah, no, it's just whack him over the head. Like any regular villain wouldn't have would have just killed him just outright. But I think that also maybe just maybe um, flushes out Geiger a bit more because Geiger's not a killer. He's not. He's just trying to make a point by crashing the boat because he, he did. He gave them the opportunity to get off the boat. He's like, you have 15 minutes evacuate. And someone who's trying to just be an out an out homicidal maniac isn't going to give them that opportunity. He's just going to crash the boat and not give them any warning. But then he's got no problem sending the captain to a, a watery grave. Which I'm so glad you brought him up. Both Svetson playing <laughs> Captain Pollard. I'm sorry. If there's a maniac swinging a bar at you and the bar is only so long and it is attached yeah. to the railing, take two steps back and you get to live. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is preceded by the fact that they're, is it four degrees off course? Which seems like a fair bit to me. Can in, in, I mean, I'm no maritime expert, but that seems quite a lot to, to where they're going. Um, and he just completely ignores it because he wants to dress up and go for dinner. Well, captain's prerogative, right? Mm. <laughs> 
I, yeah. I mean, you 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 walk towards the maniac, you're going overboard. It's, it's, it, you could, should have seen the signs. It, it's almost like they they made him so stupid in order to make way for Giuliano and for for Maquette to to be in that situation. It's like, yeah, we're just we need to get rid of the captain. It, it's like it's like the beginning yeah. of Star Wars Episode Nine. The Emperor somehow lives. What? <laughs> Royal Watkins, who played Dante the photographer, and you, you kind of have to have that quippy character to kind of help out in certain situations whenever they come up. I actually kind of liked him in this. Yeah, I mean, he was he was fine. Um, there's there's nothing really sort of bad about his performance or anything like that. I think again, you know, it falls to the script. You know, he's one of many sort of sidekicks of the film, really, for for Jason Patrick. You know, along with um, Tamara Morrison and um, Brian McCarty, um, it, yeah, it, it just sort of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit, I suppose. Um, but, you know, his performance is, is fine. He's quite charming, uh, quite charismatic as well. Um, you know, nothing, nothing really bad to say about him. You know, he does sort of help out and gets the, the plot moving along and, he, you know, he helps to to steer the ship away from the, from the container, uh, the oil container as well. So, you know, he's, he's reasonably integral part of, of them surviving as well. It kind of feels to me. And, and again, this is nothing against uh, Royal Watkins at all. Again, this is script and development. It's almost like they took the character of, and I can't remember the character's name in Die Hard. The guy who the guy who was the limo driver and waiting in the underground garage while you know John McClane you know you know goes to get his girl kind of thing. And Argyle. Argyle. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. He's he's Argyle. Dante yeah. is Argyle. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it. Well, this this was actually tossed around as a as a script for a Die Hard film, wasn't it? At one point, there, there um, there's a myth you? that it is, but yes, a myth. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. But but you can very much see the the parallels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that Speed did very well is that you only had X number of people on the bus, and those characters and the the shared peril gave weight to the situation. There were a lot of passengers on this ship that I couldn't give two craps about, and I didn't even write down <laughs> any of their names. Except for one. And that's Christine Ferkins, who played Drew, the deaf girl. Okay. I liked her in this, but I there, there's more that needed to be done. But I'm just curious. Christine Ferkins, and by the way, this is her only ever film role. Mm-hmm. She appeared, I think, in like two episodes of The X-Files after this, but that was it. This is her only movie. Yeah, you see, I was, I was, I was going to mention that. I was going to go very movie jewel on you and and point out the X Files connection of this uh, <laughs> of, of this film, of which there's quite a few, to be fair. Um, but yeah, I think it, it works quite well. But it's 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 just again, you know, it's sort of lost in the shuffle. It, it's not really sort of expanded fantastically well. But for a person, you know, an actress who is, you know, legitimately deaf in in real life, I think she she performs really well mm-hmm. and you know to to be able to sort of convey emotion and fear without vocalizing um you know she she does a she does really well i wouldn't necessarily agree with you though that there's there's not much to mention in the in the passengers of this film 
I mean, again, th- this is just they they the rest of the passengers didn't do anything for me. But the thing with with Drew, okay, first of all, kudos to the production for hiring an actual deaf person to play a deaf character. And I know, you know, there are deaf characters that are played by non-deaf people and and you can kind of see yeah. through it. Here, yes, it just positive affirmative casting. Boom. Yes, you got a deaf person playing a deaf person. Great. All good. But Drew is the character that should have been the redemption for Alex. Yeah, Maybe not necessarily the redemption, but the redemption of Alex in Annie's eyes. Because there's this whole mm-hmm. thing when they're at the dinner and, you know, he sees that Drew is kind of mopey because her parents are down on her kind of thing. You know, yeah. he, you know, from across the room, he's trying to, you know, pick up her spirits and whatnot. And of course, he does rescue her. And this mm-hmm. is after, you know, um, the whole thing of like, you know, sure, maybe kids, but it depends on who's asking kind of thing. And, you know, this yeah. is when Annie's not sure of Alex's marrying material. But rescuing Drew and the connection between what feels like the only kid on the cruise ship, yeah, that should She's, have been the the, the development yeah. that that allowed Annie to see the good in Alex, not just yeah. the I'm going to save the everybody. It's what he does for this one girl, but it's like yeah. he saves her, and then we barely we see, see her. Again. Yeah, no. yeah. She should have, you know, that should have been. If anything, she should have been the person that Geiger took off with the you know on the jet ski and and then it's left to sort of Annie and Alex I suppose to to try and rescue her that would have been probably a better development in the in the script in the plot I mean think about it Annie and Geiger are on that like dual sea you know sea do kind of thing which a super cool but imagine <laughs> if Geiger's on just a regular sea do and the two of them you know like Alex hops onto the dual thing because it's the only thing left. And, you know, he explains, no, I'm saving that girl up. She, she's going to her parents. And then Annie jumps on and says, well, you're not doing it by yourself kind of thing. And they go out on the dual sea do. And then they can, oh, my God, we're writing a better Speed 2 movie as we're talking about this. <laughs> a much better yes. climax than this. But the thing is, like, Drew could have made Alex a better person in Annie's eyes, if you allowed it to happen, you had the pieces there and you were setting it up mm-hmm. so perfectly. And then you devolved into Brian McCarty being whipped while he's counting down speed knots. <laughs> You're obsessed with Brian McCarty being whipped. Apparently so. This is, a, this is just an interesting look into your psyche, You're Jason. You're the one who brought this movie, I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, nothing in my notes about Brian McCarty being whipped. <laughs> Clearly, you forgot to go to page four. Okay. Um, I do want to make one point, uh, one shout out here before we, uh, before I I'll give you the space here to talk about any anyone else on the boat. Tim Conway as the driving instructor. First of all, I freaking love Tim Conway. I still have. On VHS, a copy of Dorf on Golf. And if you've never seen Dorf on Golf, you are missing something. The Dorf character Dorf? is so much fun. Oh, my God. Dorf on Golf. Oh, my God. You got to find it. You have to find Dorf on Golf. And it's completely, completely horrible fun in all the <laughs> worst possible ways. But it's just, but anytime Tim Conway's on, like he's a, he's a comic gem. 
He absolutely is. And to bookend it with Tim Conway as the driving instructor, I think was actually, you know, quite smart and quite fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But getting back to the rest of the people on the boat, was there anyone else that stood out for you? Well, just before we get on to that, I would like to say that Tim Conway is another X, one of the other X-Files connections as well. He was in a, a brilliant episode called Je Sweat, which was about um, a genie um, in season seven, I think. Anyone who's not seen that, go and watch it. It's great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I would I would point towards uh, Michael G. Haggerty, who plays Harvey. Um and I think, you know, I think he, he's not really fleshed out in this film, but I think he's a great comic actor. You know, he was in, he was in Friends quite a bit in the early series and uh, um, one of my personal favourites, Overboard, uh, with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Um, but I think he, <laughs> he brings a little bit of humour to the film um, and just the great line of... Uh, uh, where Alex is banging on the door and saying, are there any little girls in there? And he says, there's no little girls, just some big women um, for which he gets scolded. Um, and uh, he's, uh, Colin Camp, who plays his wife in this as well, uh, I've got a massive soft spot for Colin Camp, um, mainly because she was in Clue and played Yvette, uh, the maid. If you didn't mention it, I was going to. Yes, absolutely. Yvette as Clue. In, Yvette in Clue. Well, every, Clue is just a perfect movie. Mm, Clue yeah, is absolutely a perfect absolutely movie. Great. But the thing is, there was so little development of those yeah, characters. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. They're yeah. there for a couple of quips, and that's about it. And I think that's where Speed, obviously, is the superior film. Um, and it's because of the shared peril. And you you felt mm-hmm. for them, you you yeah. absolutely did. And you know, aside from the occasional quips here and there, and aside from Drew, you didn't really care about the passengers in this. No, 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 no. I can I I know what you mean. I think there is, and that that is a, a major major flaw in the script is that there's too much going on. You sort of built up to, you know, they 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 sort of build these characters up through the first half of the film where. You know, uh, Alex and Annie are meeting them, and and sort of, you know, in their in their sort of presence, but they're not necessarily interacting with them. So it does get a little bit. You know, this, the the runtime of this film was two hours, and you probably could have cut at least fifteen twenty minutes off that with with some of the unneeded development of some of the uh, the other passengers on the film. There's, you know, there's a couple of sisters on this uh, on the cruise as well that 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 were really superfluous to the uh, to the plot other than maybe the the big women joke um and you know there's a there's a singer and and her partner as well i think it is mm-hmm. um that that's not necessarily needed yeah but no. bef- before we move on and finish that i would just like to you know i would be remiss as 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 a you know, a gentleman of the UK to not mention that this film has an epic cameo by UB40. I did see that. I did see that. And then I heard the song and I couldn't get the song into my head. So. And I am extremely concerned because I don't know what happened to UB40 in this film. That's a. Did they get off? I'm assuming that they were evacuated <laughs> because. <laughs> 
women, children, and UB-40 first. Okay? That's, that's just the general rule of all cruise ships. <laughs> women, children, and UB-40 first. Yeah. This, I mean, this is a, a big budget action film. $160 million. It's a big budget action film in 1997. I say that because they could have done so much better with the plane crashing into the tower of the of the oil tanker. It was so badly done that I I I laughed out loud when Willem Dafoe crashed the plane and got stuck on the mast. Like Yeah. Oh like like really? Yeah, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would land on the mast and that would cause the explosion of an oil tanker. And, but here's the thing, at the speed he was going, (laughs) there's no way he's getting stuck up there like someone's playing sticky darts. (laughs) Like, and, and even if he does, there's no way he's in one piece to be able to start laughing maniacally. No. So, it, it's, anytime I think of a film that just needs an end, I always flash back to The Stand, the, the made-for-TV four-part movie, where it's all of a sudden, like, you know, you got Max Hedrum riding a bomb into Las Vegas, and the hand of God, you know, points down and, t- you, know, you know, explodes it. Like, this was Stephen King needing to end the book at that point, and... Literally, Willem Dafoe crashing his plane into a mast and getting it stuck like someone tossed a, you know, paper airplane into a chain link fence. That's literally how it felt. Mm. Toss the paper airplane to get stuck on like a bush. I get that. I get that. I think the only thing that saves the finale of this film, and I understand that those points that you've made about the plane on the on the mast and everything else, but the only thing that saves the finale of this film is the inclusion of the Glenn Plummer character from the first film. Mm, yes, yes, yes. But again, that's one of those smart callbacks to the original. Yes. And if there was yeah, a bit yeah. more of that, it, it's <laughs> that almost felt like the, one of the first drafts where it's like, oh, no, that's a brilliant idea. Keep that. Don't touch it. Like, it's all good. Right. Yeah. The same thing with you know the the very end. You know, her trying to get her driver's license again, and they almost get they got cut off by a bus going too fast. That's <laughs> that's funny. It's funny. As as yeah. as an end credit scene, it's funny. It's great. But you mentioned it earlier. In that, if you took Speed Two out of the title, mm-hmm. and it wasn't Annie, but it was some other yeah. actress. And some other different character. So there's no connection to the first speed whatsoever. It's just a boat. Mm-hmm. You can still call it cruise control too, despite how corny that title is. But it feels like a spec script and they shoehorn it in. And I always go back to American Psycho 2, where it's like you did not need to make it an American Psycho film. You yeah. just you had a script, a decent script. Don't tie it to something else because then you put the weight of expectation on it. Yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, you know, you could probably say, you know, take, take speed out of the, uh, the title. It's 
it's quite a cookie cutter 90s action film. But I think it would have been an average 90s cookie cutter action film and not a 4% on Rotten Tomatoes 90s action film. With a $160 million budget. Yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like an asylum film at times. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I think, you know, when you look at the the effects of this film, I think they almost sort of stand up. There's a few bits sort of underneath when they're when they're trying to sort of plug the, the propellers and things like that, that that can look a little bit shaky, but not bad for nineteen ninety seven compared to, you know, something that we've discussed in the past, which was the relic, which the CGI looks a lot clunkier in that than it does this mm-hmm. but you think of the you know the that um the the cruise liner crashing into the harbor at the at the end of this film is is a practical effect it's not a cgi effect there's there's a few sort of cgi effects with the the cruise liner but you know a lot of the budget went on um you know creating three different versions of the ship um and you know some a lot of those sort of effects and and those uh, set pieces of the film I think stand up pretty well. I mean aside from Willem Dafoe's perfect plane landing. But no, yeah. But I and and maybe it's the script because the script feels a little asylum. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Before we get to our MVPs, you mentioned that it's not a 4% film. And I do agree despite how bad I've been ripping on this film. Mm-hmm. It's not a four percent film because it is decent action. Your villain is has believable motives, even if it's questionable airplane landing skills. You know, you have characters that you can feel for, and you can understand the motivations and why some of those characters are the way they are. So, if you're putting a score to this out of a hundred percent, what are you putting speed two at? For me, this is at least, being generous, I would say that this is 30-40%. I would say. That's being very, well, that's being generous. I think, you know, as as far as the 4% goes, I think, you know, if I was rating this as, you know, no nostalgia, because it was at least one of the first films I saw in cinema. Um, And, you know, I enjoyed that at the time. I must admit, watching it this time around, you know, that the nostalgia effect had worn off quite a bit. But, you know, I think realistically, this is, you know, this is sort of 15, 20%. Yeah, I mean... I think the audience got it right. I I I'd put it around twenty five, personally, because I do I do think there there are redeemable factors of this, so long as you get rid of speed two. If you just take it as a regular yeah. action flick and forget that the first speed movie exists, I think you're right. I think it does fare so much better. But now it's mm. come time. So Peter, who is your MVP of Speed Two? Mm-hmm. Well. 
I'm, I'm going to have to be quite obvious on this, I think, and it is... <laughs> you know, Christine Ferguson is, is, is a very, very, very close second, but for me, it is Willem Dafoe. Because I, I just love Willem Dafoe. And, you know, if if you can see any any light in this, uh, in the in the tunnel that is speed to cruise control, it is the John Geiger character and the way that Willem Dafoe plays him. Um, just, you know, 100% right tone. Um, and, you know, you get a maniacal laugh when he's about to die. It's classic Willem Dafoe. This is going to sound really, really familiar here. But Christine Ferkins is a very close second, but I'm going to go with Willem Dafoe. Again, you, you stole my notes. You clearly hacked my system here. It would have Sorry. been Christine Ferkins. Oh, don't apologize. <laughs> it would have been Christine Ferkins, definitely, had they allowed Drew's ability to make Alex seem marryable to Annie and continued on with what they had in the first half. They had it. And they fumbled the ball and turned it into just typical action schlock. Christine Ferkins was really, really good in this. I wish she had continued on as an actress, but completely get the, you know, when someone wants to walk away, let him walk away. It's all good. But for her one and done, Christine Ferkins was really good. But no, it's Willem Dafoe (laughs) because Geiger was a good character and because he understood the assignment peter thank you so much for making me go down this road because again (laughs) i had never watched this film until prepping for this show and as much as i've been you know ripping on it a little bit it wasn't a bad time it was not Mm -hmm. a bad time because even in the worst of movies there's still something to enjoy but peter before we go please take the mic take the space and let us know all about the movie dual podcast and where people can find it Yes, so uh, I'm the host of uh, the Movie Jewel podcast. Uh, so I sort of take it in turns with what I call my Movie Jewelists, uh, which are Vanessa uh, Tarquin, Jamie, and uh, Nicole. And they each sort of take it in turns to sort of battle it out with me on a chosen subject uh, uh, with, with certain films. For example, uh, our latest episode. Uh, that has just dropped is uh, about the best film about addiction in which we talk about train spotting and requiem for a dream um and probably by the time this episode drops we'll be uh, talking about our um choices for best comic book movie uh, that's not dc or marvel in which we talk about um sin city and akira um, and then we basically sort of, you know, hash it out and, and see which film, which one of our choices uh, is the best. And you can find us uh, on Facebook at Movie Your Podcast, Instagram and Threads, all at the same uh, handle, uh, and at Movie Jewel Pod on X. Uh, and you can get in touch with us at Movie Podcast at gmail.com as well. And you will also find uh, Mr. Jason here on one of our episodes, our guest episodes that we call Quick Draw, in which we get uh, a guest on to talk about some of the movie jewels of past um, and their choices for some of the subjects that we've talked about. And that was such a fun episode too. By the way, you can also find that episode on our guest appearances page over at notthatbadcast.com. And I can't wait till if I ever get a chance to do another Quick Draw because 
you mentioned comic book movies that are not Marvel and DC, and you missed a very, very important one there. So if I ever get to do that topic on a quick duel again, <laughs> I am so prepared. But Peter, just know the microphone is always there whenever you want to hop on the show. You're always welcome here. Now, to you, our listeners, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly blind or is just so bad that there is no way in cruise control that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. And while you're there, you can check out all of our other shows, including There Can Only Be One and Keep Watch Pass and the occasional grading on a curve episode. Peter, thank you so much again. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.